Get the inside scoop on what VCs are thinking and where they are investing today and tomorrow. Ann Kennedy and Jillian Music guide you through the opaque world of venture capital and reveal all the ways you can source capital for your company's growth. It all starts right here with Ann Kennedy and Jillian Music on VC Confidential. Welcome to VC Confidential. I'm Ann Kennedy, and I'm here with my co-host and partner at Outlines Venture Group, Jillian Music. Together, we are managing directors of the Sibylla Masters Fund. You can learn more about that at masters.vc. This show is for investors and entrepreneurs alike. We're going to rip that opaque lid off conventional venture capital and show you how it works or doesn't. And there you have it, folks. Hi, Jillian. Hi, Anne. What's on your mind today, this, this week, Jillian? Well, actually, I've been thinking about Easter eggs lately. Easter eggs? It's August. Why do you have springtime on your mind? Yeah, I don't really. I, I was thinking about the tech version of that term, Easter egg. It's not the eggs the Easter Bunny hides, which is kind of weird anyway, but it's the eggs or the little treasures hidden inside software by coders. And similarly, we find Easter eggs, uh, little hidden treasures or troubles, hidden inside funding documents in our world of venture capital. Oh, this will be fun. I have an idea. Let's start with preferential rights. That's a common perk or treasure for investors that we should unpack. Oh, I would agree. That's a good start. So on a side note, one of my sons recently went to breakfast with a colleague and then he posted the following on Twitter. He said, new breakfast motto, courtesy of it, Cyrus Shepard, uh, who's quite a good search marketer. Right? He says, I'm going to make this as complicated as possible. <laughs> So while complicating breakfast orders is amusing, complicating the language in any industry for the purpose of blowing smoke in the faces of people with whom you do business and those who would like to join you in that industry is decidedly not. <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell you how often we say that, right? So with that in mind, we're going to eschew obfuscation. Yeah, you can go look that one up and get on with demystifying a preference shares. Hmm. I don't think I've heard that term applied to venture capital. Exactly. But the good folks over at grow.com, that's G-R-O-W-W.com have, and were kind enough to write, a nice, clear article that begins with the words as follows. Preference shares are also commonly known as preferred stock. Aha. It's a special type of share in which dividends are paid to shareholders prior to the issuance of common stock dividends. And there you have it right there. Preference shares, they're preferred stock. So keep that in mind, folks, especially if you're investing or raising capital in India or countries throughout Asia. Right. Uh, Grow is an Indian startup, and that's where the terminology comes from. So where uh, we call it preferred stock here in the States, they call it something else elsewhere. Keep that in mind. Now, I was saying, if you own preferred shares, you're going to get some preferences, which are benefits and advantages over the folks who own common stock. So preference just means an advantage or a benefit. First of all, you get to receive a fixed dividend out of the net profits of the company before any dividend is declared for other equity shareholders. Uh, this generally applies to, to the public market. Simply put, it means that preferred share owners get a set dividend rate and get their money annually, even if the company does not declare a general dividend for all stockholders. 
Nice. It's like a revenue share agreement. Yep. And so is kind of that declared dividend, but you get to be there first. That's nice. Now, in the case of a dissolution of the company, the preference share capital is refunded prior to the refund of the equal share, oh, excuse me, equity share capital. So this is actually the meat of our conversation, folks, on this subject. It means that if the company sells or has an IPO, right? Oh, actually, no, it's really if the company sells, sorry. The first thing that's going to happen is those preferred stockholders, they get the money they invested in the company back. Then the profits are divvied up. As a matter of fact, funds work this way too. Our very own fund says that, Anne, right? It says that our limited partners are going to get their money back. And then we talk about returns. So getting your 1x back, that's kind of important. Now, if the venture-backed company sells for this unicorn exit, you know, and so on, the money goes sky high and all of that, no problem. Plenty of money to go around, and in this event, the preference really doesn't have an impact. But let's take a look at a company that sells for a really nice, decent sum, but it sees this preference effect dig into the profits of other shareholders. This happens quite frequently, by the way, and it dramatically affects the sums founders might see at the end of their entrepreneurial efforts. Oh, it certainly does. So here's an example. A company raises a total of a million bucks, and it gets a 1x preference with those angels, okay? That means the angel investors are gonna get their collective million bucks back to themselves in invested capital out of that company if and when it sells or holds an IPO, of course, good enough. All right, so far so good, everybody. You're gonna get your money back. Then the company raises another 10 million bucks. This one has a 3x preference. Now that's a hefty preference, but times are tough and the, capital, uh, the company needs capital to grow to the next level. So founders are certain that they will see a fine exit if they take this capital and they take it. Now, the company sells at 40 million bucks in another year or so. Hey, they've beaten all manner of odds. The founders have built the company from scratch, from just an idea to a company that sells for $40 million. Think about it, guys, that's ah, well done. They've also done so within about the 10-year time limit from the idea to a sale. Again, hey, very well done. Only 4% of venture-backed companies ever see a successful exit. Let's do the math. First, the preferred shareholders take their invested capital back at the angel level. That's $1 million to the early investors. Those angels get 1 million bucks back. Then there's the 10 million bucks that go to the VCs who came later. Again, they get their 1x back so far, right? That leaves you 29 million bucks so far. That's without counting the costs of the sale and the attorney's fees and the marketing expenses for an M&A firm and all of that stuff, of course. But let's just use the broad numbers. Now the VCs take another three times their original, not another, excuse me, they take three times their original invested capital, which is two times more than what they put in. So they take their 10 million bucks and they take another 20 million bucks off the table. And that leaves just 9 million to be shared by the common stockholders, generally the founders and their employees. Now, 9 million is a tidy sum, but for 10 years work on the part of the founders who by now probably have more than a few gray hairs to show for their efforts, this is less than 1 million, million. per year. Yeah. And assume there are two founders, that's less than 500,000 dollars per year. 
yes, and assume that they've done the right thing. And they shared, say, about 20% of the common stock with their employees. Now you take 20% of 9 million, that's 1.8 million. It leaves you 7.2 million for the founders. You divvy that up among two founders, and it's 3.6 million over 10 years' effort, or 360,000 per annum for their efforts. Now, there's a few things to note, folks. 40 million is a damn decent exit. From zero to $40 million in value, well done, founders. Let's not throw away what most companies will sell for, that under the $100 million. I mean, this is well over the 10 million or 5 million of small businesses and so on. Well done. 3.6 million is not a life-changing sum in the United States. I know that's crazy, but in 2021, for someone who's still in the prime of their earning years, in their 30s, 40s, or maybe even early 50s, without or with a family in tow, you shouldn't expect to retire on that 3.6 million at that kind of age, say age 40, and think that this sum is going to last you to the end of the days unless you select a very modest lifestyle. And while you're earning, you know, hails by comparison to what you could have earned had you not taken the VC money. Let's take a look at that scenario. Selling the company for 20 million and having it built by bootstrapping, essentially getting revenue in the door early and using that revenue to expand as you go. Okay. So let's say the company sells for 20 million bucks. You're very generous to your staff. You set aside 5 million bucks for that, uh, you know, of that 20, and you split it up among them in a reasonable, equitable manner uh, based on the years of service, the contributions they made. You did well. Now, leaves you 15 million bucks to split between the two founders, 7.5 million each. At this point, depending on the financial situation with the founders, it's the start of and end of their journey. This might already be described as a life-changing sum. Precisely. And it's enough for each of the founders to take some time off, consider the next career move. Uh, you can get 8% in investment in a, in a conservative REIT these days, folks, right? Let's take, say you put in, uh, you know, you'll get $400,000, for example, if you put in 5 million of your 7.5. You still have 2.5 million liquid capital. Go buy a nice house, send the kids to school, take a good holiday, invest in uh, short and midterm investments. Now we're talking about capital that will earn on its capital. What we're demonstrating here is for the benefit of entrepreneurs, really, the preference in an investment document is critical. All will likely be well if the company sells in the 500 million and above range. But if your company sells at a very decent sum of 30 million or even 250 million or more, depending on the sums you raise and the preference as demanded by investors, you may see a rather paltry return compared to what you might have had you bootstrapped. Yes. And now we get to the third benefit for investors in preferred stock. And I should point out, by the way, guys, it was a very simple example that we've just played out here. It can be a lot more complex. But now let's do this. The, the investors in preferred stock, if the company shutters its doors, in other words, it goes out of business, your preference with a preferred stock is that you get paid first. First, the company has to settle its creditor's debts. Uh, you know, if it owes something to, um, you know, rent and so on, that sort of thing, fine. Everybody else gets to share in what's left after you take your money. So assuming the company you invest in goes bust, and that happens about 80% of the time when a VC fund invests in, invest using conventional venture capital. 
Yes, it does. And we've got all kinds of examples, but unfortunately, we don't have time for it now, Anne. It's time to take a break for our sponsors. We will be right back with more insights into the world of venture capital on VC Confidential. More ways you can source capital for your company's growth on VC Confidential is coming up. Here's the truth you need to know about podcasting. The biggest problem you face right now as a future podcaster is the myth that it takes an enormous amount of time or effort to produce a high-quality professional podcast. Luckily for you, there's a solution to your problem. If you're an online marketer who really needs to grow an audience of buyers but can't do all the heavy lifting alone, then here's the solution you're looking for. Introducing the DFY Podcasting System. Here's what you get. 30 minutes of one-on-one training a weekly podcast for you or your company, distribution to almost every podcast portal, an embeddable player for your website, an ebook called How to Podcast, created for WMR.FM show hosts, and much, much more. And best of all, you'll start seeing results with the DFY podcast system within a couple of weeks. You're just one podcast away from growing brand awareness and engagement in your business. Log on to podcast.wmr.fm and sign up for a deeply discounted rate today. That's podcast.wmr.fm. Ann Kennedy and Jillian Music are back with the inside scoop on what VCs are thinking and where they are investing today and tomorrow on VC Confidential, only on wmr.fm. Welcome back to VC Confidential. I'm Ann Kennedy with Jillian Music talking about what you as an investor, advisor, entrepreneur need to know about venture capital. Today, we're talking about Easter eggs in venture capital investment documents. Easter eggs for the investors, that is. (laughs) That's right. Investment documents are really written to please investors, to entice them to invest. So this is a kind of a buyer beware situation for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are essentially buying capital from investors. I know it sounds strange, you're buying money. But, you know, reading these investment documents and understanding them is really important. Indeed. Before the break, we opened the conversation with the discussion of preferential rights that come with the ownership of preferred stock or shares and the benefits it brings to investors. What's next on our list of goodies that investors and entrepreneurs alike should be looking for in a venture capital investment document? Well, next up, I'd like to talk about two things, governance and information rights. Let's see how far we get here. I know that we're always running out of time. The first is governance. It's pretty short and sweet. In the simplest terms, it means that the investors will get a seat on the board of directors or they get to appoint someone to represent them on that board. Yeah, that's right. The effect of that right can be far reaching and powerful for the investors. First, it makes sure that someone is looking out for the investors on the board. That's what the term governance is all about. Surely you don't invest in someone you don't trust to be ethical, or do you? I think you refer to individual investors um, such as angels and super angels at the earliest stages. At that point, investment is really a personal issue. It's relationship driven. Investors are far less likely to invest in unscrupulous individuals if they get to know the person first. But far too often, angels as well as VCs do invest in unscrupulous individuals, or perhaps the individuals in whom they invest become unscrupulous when they receive the reins of power and capital in their hands. 
The founders or senior leadership essentially run amok with the invested capital. The larger sum, the larger the sum, the more likely this is to happen. Yep, there are literally hundreds of cases of founders and leaders who don't just get careless with investment capital, they waste it, or they use it on personal expenses, they live a high life, becoming increasingly unattached uh, to their um, original purpose. So governance issues are not limited to founders using companies uh, invested money essentially for personal use. Sometimes the malfeasance has nothing to do with buying a fancy car or taking a first class holiday, right? It has to do with false claims about a company's product, its prospects, or maybe even its value currently in order to raise more capital or boost the value of shares before they go public. Now, CB Insights, one of our favorite folks who publish all kinds of data, uh, but among many, many others, they've covered this subject of startup company waste of capital, and I quote, from Theranos, the blood testing startup that never had even a glimmer of truly of a truly working product, but still raised more than $700 million, to Hampton Creek, the vegan mayo company that was caught buying its own merchandise in bulk to inflate its sales numbers, the freedom and innovative energy of the value, uh, Valley has at times been used to fuel a variety of possible startup scams and fraud. Well, that makes very plain why getting a say in who sits on the board of directors of a company in which you invest is important. You don't want to be holding the bag, uh, the stock, as it were, of a company that goes bad and sometimes really bad. Absolutely. First of all, it's worth nothing. And second of all, you want nothing to do with it. All right. So that brings us to information rights. Um, it's another benefit that's commonly associated with investment documents in private equity and venture capital. And information rights is a reasonably transparent title. It literally means that investors have the right to get certain pieces of information from the leadership of the company in which they're invested. Cool. In the public markets, there are laws and rules and regs that govern all of that. The information that each publicly traded company must disclose and how frequently that company must disclose that information. And that goes to the public, not only to the investors. So in private company investment situations, the terms will be disclosed, right? How often, to whom, and so on. That's all spelled out in the investment documents. Well, that makes good sense. And for once, the title is descriptive and plain. Nice. Let's run through common information rights. Okay, now that's a can of worms, but let's go through them. So I'm going to share the information rights clauses that we actually use in our own master's fund investment documents. Talk about transparency, right? Now, I will say that when our own wonderful, by the way, attorney sent us this template, I first read through the information rights segment, a section of our investment documents. And I was just sure I was going to be taking my famous brutal red pen to those clauses. I was going to be clearing out items that weren't needed, paring down a long list of irrelevant pieces of information. I was going to be rewriting the language. And what really happened there, Jillian? I ate crow, Anne. I ate crow. <laughs> Every <Tasty>. item. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> Raw. <laughs> Every item on that list. Every word that was described was important. It was important to the private investor, never mind to our roles as managing directors of a private equity fund. We really do need access to all the information that was listed here. Okay, Anything less would not give us sufficient information to 
get, get that word governments, to oversee the governance and the health, that's financial health as well, of the portfolio company. So yes, indeed, I ate crow. Now, many years ago, I recall reading the definition of true art as defined by the philosopher Martin Heidegger. He wrote Der Ersprung der Kunstwerks, which is translated to the essence of art or the true art, right? And he said, fairly tightly translated, he said, true art is that to which nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away without transforming or changing the essence or the meaning of the whole. Okay, David Gitlin, he's our brilliant attorney, right? He created true art for us in our investment documents. And I was reading legalese, really. Now that's saying something. I'm not a fan of legalese, as anyone who knows me even a little bit will attest, but this was true art. Now, I'm going to dissect every line here. Information rights starts this way. As long as this warrant shall remain outstanding, the company shall deliver to the fund. So far, so good, right? As soon as practicable, but in any event within 120 days at the end of this fiscal year and at the end of every fiscal year thereafter, right? That's pretty clear. We need to see it this year and every year thereafter, right? The consolidated sheet of the company at the end of the year, okay? In other words, what's in the bank, what's owned, what's owed, you know, the financial health of the company. Pretty straightforward. And then there are consolidated statements of income and statements of cash flow for the company for each year, setting forth in each case in comparative form the figures for the previous year. Cash flow provides critical insight into whether the company will need to raise more capital. Okay, and I know we're going to run out of time here pretty quick, but hopefully we'll finish this up after the last break here. Um, it, it's going to tell us whether or not this company has to raise capital or whether it's got, uh, you know, how long it is between now and long term profitability, success and so on. And in our case, when, the, when and whether the company is on track to redeem the warrant, which we issue. Right. Okay. So let's return ROI to our fund. Now we're also asking for a statement of stockholder equity at the end of the year, right? So no matter whether you're a venture debt or venture equity investor, you want to know who all the other stockholders are. You want to know the terms of those holdings, whether the company has issued stock in lieu of pay, for example, to an employee or vendor, or whether more investors have joined the current round. We and you as an investor would need to know that. Then since we best worldwide, we clarify how this information will be presented. That's right. Quote, all such financial documents is reasonable detail, United States dollar denominated prepared in accordance with the United States generally accepted accounting principles, also known as GAAP. Yeah, that's right. Then we add instructions to cover different situations in which the company might find itself. These words cover instances in which the company has a CFO or maybe it doesn't. We ask for consistency in reporting. We even ask to see last year's info and this year's info on a single page in two columns side by side so we can compare and see the trajectory. What went up, what went down and where, if any, are there large differences? You want to see these things pop, right? This helps everyone to efficiently review what's going on with money inside a portfolio company. And the company leaders need to see this as well as investors. With this kind of language, we make sure that they and we all see it and see it clearly. And there's more. The company must report within 90 days following the end of each quarter unaudited. We're not going to ask these early stage companies to incur the cost of having financial 
audits done quarterly at this point, but they have to show us income and cash flow statements for the preceding year to date, and then we'll continue to receive these documents on a quarterly basis. That's right. We want to see what just happened, then we invest, and we keep going. If a company has a CFO, that's the person who's going to sign off on these reports. They'll attest to the fact that the documents were prepared according to GAAP, and there were no major changes in the way the company reported things. A lot can be obfuscated by changing how you report something. And again, we end run the problem by putting that same as last year requirement into the words of our uh, investment documents. So at the end of the year, the CEO needs to prepare and share with, you know, share us with us, excuse me, and share with us her and her management's projections for the coming two years. Now the leadership team prepares this document every year and projects out the coming two years. And we keep a sharp eye on any legal proceedings and require our portfolio companies to report within 10 days if there are any legal proceedings, you know, lawsuits filed by or against the company. That's something you'll want to know immediately. And ditto, of course, if they've been served with any notices of defaults or of loans, material losses, stuff like that. So then there's the issue of stock. We asked the, uh, the company to take a stock of its stock. Hey, you did not just say that. Yeah, I sure didn't. Pun was intended. What we're asking for is a comprehensive look at the outstanding stock at the time of the investment, including who gets voting rights and dividends and the other perks we talked about in the first part of our show today. And then the company continues to keep us uh, this document updated in a timely manner, which means whenever there's a change, if the company reclassifies stocks, if it merges, it sells, it holds an IPO anywhere in the world, or of course, if it's going to go bust, you know, close the doors under any circumstances, we get to know before it happens with sufficient time to do whatever we have to do about it to optimize value for our fund. As an investor, you'll want to be sure you're on this information rights list and get any of those notices too. And with that, we must take another break for our sponsors. You are listening to VC Confidential and we will be right back. More ways you can source capital for your company's growth on VC Confidential is coming up. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ann Kennedy and Jillian Music are back with the inside scoop on what VCs are thinking and where they are investing today and tomorrow on VC Confidential, only on WMR.FM. Welcome back to VC Confidential. We are so glad you joined us. Today we have unpacked the benefits that investors get in an investment document and how it affects, uh, for the good or the bad, the entrepreneurs, the company, and the general public and economy. First, Jillian, when you mentioned private equity and venture capital a few moments ago, I was reminded that we've got to do a show devoted to the concepts of private equity, 
PE versus public equity portfolios, the difference between PE and VC, venture capital, and this concept of alternative investments, and I will tell you why. The fact that people who manage public equity portfolios and get paid to manage those assets always call private equity investments, air quotes here, alternative investments, that really sticks in my craw. I'd like to get a show on this subject on our calendar and explain why I get so hot under the collar about this issue. Hmm. Thanks for allowing me a brief rant. More to come for sure. Oh, I'm looking forward to that discussion. There's a really dark corner of this shrouded world of investing. Well, meanwhile, let's recap before we have to close off this show in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the elements to look for closely in an investment document are preference rights, governance rights, and information rights. And each is critical to protect investors and entrepreneurs alike and the provisions set forth in them will affect the outcomes for all. Absolutely. And don't forget this other little Easter egg, it's valuation. I know it's right out there in the open, but sometimes it's not so much. In things like safe notes, convertible notes, things like that, the valuation of the company is set in the future. So it can be a little bit, again, obfuscated. <laughs> you just, you want to look to see how it's being defined and what the preferential treatments will be um, in this preferred stock as they go to the next level, if you will. So if you have a um, convertible note or a safe, which is a simple convertible note, um, then you, what you want to look for uh, are the things like the discount rate. Sometimes it's written as 80% of what it really means is a 20% discount from the top line. Let's say uh, you're investing now and uh, you're going to buy, uh, I don't know, $100,000 worth of shares today, but it's at a future, uh, excuse me, you're not 100,000, you're gonna buy shares today at a future price. And the future price will be set when the series A comes in. What both investors and entrepreneurs want to look at is one, the cap. In other words, uh, you get, an evaluation for 10 million bucks in uh, I don't know, a year or two down the road. And that's what the next guys come in at. But the cap said it was going to be 8 million. So, or maybe 7 million, doesn't matter. You're not gonna pay more as that earlier investor. That's what you get for taking earlier risk. Then the second piece is, what is your discount? Let's say it comes in at, I don't know, you said eight and it comes in at eight and that's good, but you get a 20% discount. So again, look at those kinds of numbers, determine where you think the company is going to be, what kind of valuation they're likely to get when they get to that next series if you're using a convertible note. Valuation is one of those little Easter eggs, hidden gems that can either serve or break you. Yep, there's a lot more to say about valuation and I believe we did so. Um, uh, last year on this, this show, I'll pop a link into it. Uh, for people who want to explore that more. Excellent. And that's a wrap for this episode of VC Confidential. We invite you to join us every other Tuesday for a new episode as we take a deep dive into the opaque world of venture capital and share learnings and ideas on the inner workings of the shrouded corner of business finance known as venture capital. We'd like to thank our producers at WMR.FM, who graciously hosted our previous CEO coach show for more than a decade and host our new VC Confidential show 
now in its 47th episode. We're closing in on 50, Jillian. We are grateful for their long and continued support of our work. You can listen to all our episodes from both shows right here on WMR.FM and in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ann Kennedy with Jillian Music, and we are so glad you joined us on VC Confidential. Till next time. Till next time. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.